We're going to do something a little bit different uh, here on High Noon today and in some episodes to come. Um, every month, we're going to be recording with Emily Jashinsky, um, who is a colleague of mine at IWF, as well as the culture editor at The Federalist. Um, and she also works at YAF, Young Americans for Freedom, where she raises up the next generation of intrepid uh, journalists on the right. Don't scare people. <laughs> um, so every month, we're going to do a kind of docket episode where um, we're going to discuss what we think are the most important stories of the last three weeks to a month. Um, that you might have missed, not because, uh, you know, sort of their day-to-day -day, uh, unimportant, they might get a day or two in the headlines, uh, but because they represent some kind of turning point, um, I think, in the ongoing battle for, uh, is it too dramatic to say America's soul? It's um, not true. It would have been too dramatic, like, what, five years ago? Right. Um, but here we are. Here we are talking about the battle for America's soul. Um, but we are going to be doing this once a month, um, and we hope that you enjoy this this regular segment in addition to the interviews that we normally do on High Noon. So um, welcome, Lucky Emily. you. Thanks, Inez, and thank you to all of your, your listeners for, um, you know, staying tuned. You've had some really big interviews. I, I've been surprised at how much I, I like interviewing people. I, I always consider myself somebody who likes to talk too much. So it has been, <laughs> it's been great to actually listen to other people talk for a change. This um, is why women can't do podcasts together. That is what I hear. <laughs> uh, also because our voices sound the same, apparently. And by us, I mean all women. All women. All women's voices sound the same. I don't know. I So the new thing that people are telling me, um, mostly in YouTube comments, is that they think I am deliberately lowering my voice like Elizabeth Holmes to garner male respect. Um, and I sort of wish that were the truth. <laughs> See, but perfect. I've always, always sounded want like what this. you don't have because I <laughs> am a person who seriously considered lowering my voice for male respect because I am a soprano one. So my <laughs> voice is very naturally high. And in my head, it sounds very serious uh, and studious and, and academic. Um, but then I go back and listen to myself and I sound like a little girl. Well, so. nobody likes to listen to themselves. So that's entirely fair. But <laughs> I am not Elizabeth Holmes, no matter what your ears might be telling you. Yeah, I guess I need to pick up a, a heavy cigarette habit in order to <laughs> to uh, rasp my voice up appropriately. I'm honestly surprised you don't have a heavy cigarette habit. <laughs> <laughs> Strange but true. Um, anyway, so we are going to be talking about a number of subjects today, um, but they're all going to revolve around this idea um, of, of the culture war and uh, to what extent that is actually... Um, kind of the underlying fault lines, uh, even when we're talking about seemingly non-cultural topics, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in the news for the last uh, few weeks, and who knows how long it'll continue to be in the news, are the budget fights. Um, mm -hmm. You know, traditionally 2010 Tea Party style budget <laughs> limit, um, but debt limit raise fights. We're talking about a $3.5 trillion infrastructure package, um, and now maybe a one. One trillion dollar infrastructure no, package. No, it won't. It won't. <laughs> um, well, trillions in infrastructure, yes. uh, and we are talking about raising the debt limit, and we are talking about um, various, as as the left would call it, investments um, in in the country's future. And I think too often we really talk about fiscal issues as though they are totally divorced and totally separate um, from the culture war. 
But we're going to talk a little bit about what's actually in this package and why, um, as I was telling Emily just before we came on the podcast, I would really prefer to just put $3.5 trillion in a giant bonfire (laughs) and light it on fire. Um, As bad as that will be for future American taxpayers, it will not be as bad as some of the things um, that I I think that are being advanced in this bill. But Emily, um, why don't you tell us initially, since uh, you wrote about this um, extensively at The Federalist, what are some of the things that people might not expect that are in this package? If they're thinking infrastructure, um, what are the, some of the things that you think are the most pernicious elements of this? Um, universal basic income for illegal immigrants, <laughs> which is a real thing that this bill does. It's under the very false label of an expanded child tax credit, which no serious person in the media should use as a label for what the policy actually is. It is uh, direct cash payments to parents with no means testing um, that actually illegal immigrants will qualify under the language that's currently in the bill. Maybe that'll change. But that's that is a uh, whether or not it was whether or not that applies to illegal immigrants. That is an incredibly radical policy that will really, really change our relationship fundamentally with the federal government. If parents are relying on monthly direct deposits into their bank accounts, from the federal government, all parents, it, it doesn't matter, you know, it's, it's all parents. And that's a huge, huge change for us as a society and as a culture. And so while we're debating the price tag of a bill like this, um, it's, it's in the context of infrastructure negotiations. So it's easy to sort of gloss over it and be like, okay, well, maybe we'll spend a little too much on bridges. That's not what's happening in this bill. That's not what people are upset about. This bill is a, would transform the country just with that one policy that is essentially a universal basic income because again, it's for all parents. It's not qualified. um, And don't think that they won't be adding conditions to it later, even if there aren't, if there aren't conditions now. This is the same federal government that is using OSHA's emergency authorization to implement a vaccine mandate. (laughs) So once you grow the size of the federal government, you allow it to be used in myriad ways. Just quickly, there's also universal pre-K, federal leave, um, federal family leave, I should say, federal medical leave as well, which is another entirely different thing, but serious thing. Um, and in addition to all of those items, there's free community college. This is really like birth through, this is life of Julia. And here it is in an infrastructure reconciliation bill. Um, and yeah, so free community college and it just, it just keeps going. And the question then, what's interesting? What's most interesting to me about this is that the Democratic establishment, which is not usually on the same size, same side as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, this is Joe Biden's bill. Build back better, $3.5 trillion. This is Joe Biden's bill. So the Democratic establishment is the Bernie has won the center, essentially. Um you know, it's interesting because in some sense, this is the most popular thing that Biden could do, right? If, if we think about how polls have shaken out in the last year or so, um, some of the most popular items that Joe Biden promised might be things like infrastructure spending, uh, might be these sort of budget busting bills. And that's why I think it's so important to unpack them and look about what, look at what's actually inside. You know, you, you mentioned the, um, the preschool extension, um, that is something that sounds like, um, I think, for a lot of Americans, sounds very positive, right? Yes. Um, but if you look at what's going on around the country right now in yeah. 
K-12 public schools, yeah. um, we are having a battle over what we're going to teach our children, for example, with regard to critical race theory, with regard to um, how they're going to, to feel about the country uh, in which they are citizens. And um, so my, my colleague and uh, president of IWF, uh, Carrie Lucas, had a great piece about this, pointing out that we're having this big fight about indoctrination in the K-12 system. But what this bill does is extend that indoctrination <laughs> yeah. down into preschoolers. Right. And these, these two issues, the economic and the social you know, sort of battles or the culture war, they are wrapped together in a certain sense um, because in many ways, when the government advances its position, for example, into preschool or into family leave or, um, you know, into some of these areas of American life that superficially a lot of people say it'd be great to get, you know, an extra few thousand bucks mm -hmm. um, towards things that I really need. And people really do have economic struggles and they look to the government to try to fill some of those gaps. And there's even folks on the right um, who think that we need to look at it that way in order to strengthen families, for yes. example. Yep. And the gap between that theory and what is actually going to happen as essentially the woke bureaucracy implements um, some of the provisions of this bill uh, is, is going to be extreme. And I think we're going to find that even if you care primarily and even if you care exclusively about the culture war aspect of this, um, these bills are going to be just fueling the enemy. It's like taking a, a Prius and turning it into a pickup truck in terms of like its ability to bulldoze the remnants of a healthy culture. <laughs> like that's what you're doing when you expand the size of the federal government. We want to expand it at a time when its stewards have proven to be less capable than perhaps ever before and less in touch with local needs than ever before. The point about teachers from you and from Carrie is, is very well taken because we've seen a total lack, uh, an opaqueness in schools, and we've seen the corruptions of teachers' unions. We would be very silly to not think that universal pre-K would be corrupted by the very same forces that are currently corrupting, I would say, even less vulnerable systems. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's like handing over the keys to a bigger vehicle to bulldoze the culture. And it's very so someone I really like, and he was much smarter than me, Lyman Stone, um, wrote in terms of, I think this was about the Romney um, child policy, child tax credit policy, which was direct deposits on a monthly basis for most parents, not all parents. Um, and it did have some strings attached that conservatives, I think, would, would support, although not a marriage requirement. He mentioned this really great hypothetical case of a woman who was driving Uber who, because of that $300 payment, would then be able to spend a few extra hours with her children. And that is absolutely the best case scenario. But I don't think conservatives should throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to like the very real principles we have about the, the counterproductive effect of welfare in communities um, and the dignity of work. And that's those are the grounds on which Senator Rubio and I think Senator Lee protested the Romney proposal something they've worked on immensely hard, which is uh, some sort of tax credit, child tax credit, which they got into the 2017 tax bill. We're not wise to throw all of that out the window uh, because th those are very real, very corrupting effects. And just because we feel like we're in a state of emergency, and I agree with that. I think we are in a state of emergency. I think you would agree with me too. It doesn't mean that's going to play out differently. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because 
there have been, and I, I've kind of wrestled with this myself, um, talked to Alex Kachuta about this on her podcast. Um, there's been a critique of capitalism from the right that says uh, capitalism essentially atomizes us. It, it, um, it, it further weakens those bonds between communities and families um, that are so critical to not just, um, you know, all the all the sort of social conservative goods, um, but really to human flourishing and to happiness and meaning. Um, and sometimes the answer to that uh, has been, well, we need to move, you know, in a more big government or socialistic direction with regard to taking care of the economic problems that are feeding these cultural problems. And I, I agree with kind of the second part of the sentence, but not the first Right. Um, My Siri just went off, and that's triggered. <laughs> they're, spying, they're spying on us. Um, no, but the, the second part of that sentence, I think, is is very true. But the first part, the premise, I just don't agree. I don't think, to the extent that capitalism has been responsible for some breakdown in the family and, and increasing alienation, it hasn't been because of the, st the structure of capitalism. It's been because we have gotten much, much wealthier globally and of course uh, especially within america and family is not and and, and thick community is not always pleasant right um there's there's a reason that people often do you know move away from their families or, or separate themselves from their families in some way because um even in a non-abusive for example situation in a normal situation it, it can be um, very painful or, or non-idyllic um, to have that kind of interference with what you want at any given time. It's not necessarily a pleasant experience. And to some extent, the wealth created by capitalism has quote unquote freed us from that. Yeah. Um, but what I don't think follows at all from that analysis is that if we create more big government structures um, surrounding the individual, that that's actually not going to make the problem worse instead of better, yeah. right? It, allowing uh, the life of Julia, right? The cycle of, um, you know, cradle to grave dependence on the government uh, in various ways does not, and here I'm not just talking about, for example, welfare programs. I am absolutely talking about what I would characterize as welfare um, and self-dealing by a managerial class, by yeah. the way, like student loan forgiveness, sidebar. Um, <laughs> so it's not just welfare for the poor, it is welfare very much for the upper middle class. And you had a great essay on that. What was in, in the American mind? Yeah, the American yeah. mind, um, writing about how loan forgiveness is welfare for the upper middle class. So you can check that out. I'm not going to elaborate on the argument any further here, but, um, you know, I just fundamentally don't agree that the solution to the atomization created by what I think is not necessarily directly capitalism, but wealth as a result of capitalism is to then make sure that there are even more government structures upon which individuals can depend um, instead of their families. Well, this is the problem. Um, and, I don't think the right, I think people forgot about this on the right when it seemed to not be an issue. Um, and it was, it seems to not be an issue because people weren't paying attention um, and because government is a reasonable and easy scapegoat. But I think this is part of the problem on the right, which is that unfettered capitalism um, needs to be fettered. <laughs> right? like, there's a, the, the, the sort of um, the, the, what's the word that I'm looking for? The, the, uh, I'm forgetting the word. Maybe it's because we're, we've each had a glass of wine. Um, but the, the sort of epitomatic capitalist um, 
believes that we need to tend to the the weeds. We need to pull the weeds in the sort of garden of capitalism, right? Like we need to tend to the garden. We need to tend to the weeds. And there should not be a system of cronyism. Um, and there should there should not be a system where the government is enabling oligarchy, essentially. Um, that's not capitalist. That might be Randian, um, and we can get into a semantic game about what actually who owns the true definition of capitalism. But I don't think that's capitalism as the American right has has ever the mainstream of the American right has ever really argued. I think there are people who have erred too far in one direction or the other. Um, and I would say particularly the other, there are a lot of Republicans who love the regulatory state, but that's not really the, you know, but it was easy to forget about, right, when things seemed to be, when the standard of living seemed to be increasing rapidly, I guess we lost track of how quickly that rapid, these rapid sort of technological advances were also just changing the way we interact with each other as, as humans on a very fundamental level, like in the scope of human history. This is my favorite. I, I had Robbie Suave on the Federalist podcast, and I love Robbie. He made an argument that I that frustrates me, which is that well, well, listen, there have been there have been um, you know fears of technological changes since the wristwatch and the mirror, and all of these. It was like, well, yeah, in the scope of human history, all of these things are kind of new to us. <laughs> If, if you look at how we are sort of how slowly we evolve and how new like the printing press is in the scope of human history, like we are actually adapting to the this is a sort of slow industrialization, which feels slow to humans because it goes back, you know, centuries. But uh, humans have been along around for a very long time without any of those things. And so our lives have, have changed in ways that human beings have never experienced in a very short time. And it is due to capitalism and it's partially due to a, a system of cronyism. But capitalism has also increased our lifespans. It's decreased poverty. It's done all of these very good things. And so capitalism and government are this two sides of the same coin. That's it's they they enable the best and the worst of humans to emerge and to interact, but that means they also should be tempering each other. And I think we've erred too far on uh, you know, the side of the wealthy and the powerful, which is a problem that our system of Republican government is supposed to correct. You know, and and in many ways, um, the more large and complex government gets, uh, the more it is easy or um, false prey to cap to capture by I'm good, um, by interests. Um, who are able to then be part of, I mean, I think the old fashioned story would be to say that there's a lot of friendships between, um, you know, the, the, the regulators and the regulated, right. Um, mm -hmm. that there is a somewhat incestuous relationship, a revolving door. Um, but I, I think the reality, so that's, that's not new analysis, but the reality is in some ways to me, um, even worse or has developed. And the reason that I, I do think that we've crossed out of meritocracy and, and, into a more oligarchic type system um, is how this particular, and, and people think of them as like totally separate entities and they're not, they are functionally the same group, not the 1%, not the billionaires, not the, like Jeff Bezos doesn't worry me nearly as much as the next 10% underneath mm. him having a completely uniform um, cultural outlook overwhelmingly. Um, these are your your upper upper class professionals, right? Yeah. What 
what uh, Michael Lind and before him Burnham called the managerial class. That's really um, interesting. Folks who, for example, and a lot of them do most, they do all of these things in the course of their career, in, are in C-suite of Amer- American, large American corporations. They are working as part of the regulatory state um, in, in the administrative state that now governs whatever part of our affairs are kept out of the courts, um, which governs the other half of our affairs. <laughs> uh, in, um, and and then also in, in academia, right? And, and that to me is the much more concerning revolving door, like a larger revolving door. And the fact is that a lot of these big government policies are essentially putting their finger on the scale in favor of that class of people in a variety of ways. And I talked about... Um, student loan forgiveness. But I would argue that, for example, the way that the the paid leave debate has taken shape, mm. um, it has, it's, it always uses as a totem in front, uh, women who are working multiple jobs, who are struggling, who don't have any time off. Um, but in reality, when you look at some of these proposals, the largest beneficiaries are um, women who already have, um, who already have access to some amount of paid leave in corporations and will allow corporations to uh, offload those responsibilities essentially yeah. onto the taxpayer. That's actually not a benefit, or at least only an incidental benefit, to the class of people who's being advanced as the face of the policy. It is, in fact, mostly a benefit for essentially dual income, upper middle class to uh, um, upper class professional people. Once again, who are the, the the people who both know and rotate in and out of these same three poles of government agencies, corporate America, and the academy. That's, to me, that is so, if we think about, for example, this this infrastructure bill or so much of fiscal policy, if we think of it through that lens, it all starts to make so much more sense to me. Like the the political landscape makes so much more sense to me um, when I think that the actual constituency of the Biden administration is upper middle class professionals, mm-hmm. not the one percent. Yeah, that ten percent or fifteen percent of people who operate in those circles, and by the way, have a monolithic cultural view that they use all of the tools of corporations, agency, government, and the academy to force down the throats of what is not even really half of America at this point is yeah. the vast majority on a lot of these issues. The vast majority of Americans. I love that Inez is from Palo Alto and is, <laughs> That's is somehow feel this way. <laughs> more in touch with the the sort of like values of middle America uh, than the much of the political establishment. Also, I have to say, um, when I got my wisdom teeth removed, I had dry sockets and on, on all four wisdom teeth. It was miserable. And I went back to my dentist and I asked for a an, an, an increase where a, a renewed prescription of the painkiller that had been just allotted on a, a sort of normal basis because of the four dry sockets. And the way that he rejected me um, felt so similar to the way that you rejected me when I asked you if you wanted another glass of wine just now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just still drinking the first one. Oh, we'll get there. Gosh, um, Europeans. Uh, but <laughs> So what I was going to say is that first um, you said I was a woman of the people. Now you're calling me a European <laughs> elite. I mean, which is it, Emily? Well, I think it, we'll find out. <laughs> That's the test. In the course of this uh, podcast. But I, I do want to move a little bit from the substance of this bill. I think we've we've both laid out why we think that these types of programs are actively pernicious. Um, but 
you know, how should we talk about stuff like this infrastructure bill? Because on the one hand, there's sort of the what I increasingly feel is like sort of a stale libertarian recital yeah. of the debt clock. Um, we're, we're, we're going to, uh, collapse into, and, and it may very well be true this time. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, seriously, but, uh, you know, it just, I just don't feel that it's very convincing to people when they've heard it. One, they've heard it so many times before. And two, um, essentially, <laughs> uh, I think everything else just feels so pressing yeah. right now that what may happen five, 10, 20 years down the line in terms of our fiscal sanity <laughs> um, is is just not top of mind for most people right now in terms of the issues they're confronting. And should it be? Right. Um, and I, I think that's a very defensible position, by the way. I think it's a totally defensible position uh, to say that, like, you know, we know we can't keep stacking debt forever, but we have to take care of some of these other issues before we take care of the debt issue because they are way more pressing um, to the future of the country. And 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 then, of course, we know in poll after poll that the debt ranks near the bottom, that people are not uh, particularly receptive to arguments about the debt. Um, and out on top of that, the profligacy of both parties gives very few people um, a leg to stand on in terms of, um, especially politicians, in terms of uh, any kind of principled uh, advocacy to draw down spending. The Trump administration cut taxes and then raised spending. That is the, that has been the Republican formula. That's how they do it. Um, the Democrats like to raise taxes and spending. Yeah, um, the best of both worlds. Right. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, how should we talk about these issues? Um, how do we connect with people in a way that recognizes the legitimacy of their position to to downplay? the importance of, of that debt clock number, um, and yet still get across that even if you don't care about the debt, there are things in this bill that you should not be closing your ears to when we talk about because, and by we, I don't mean you and I, Emily, I mean like mm. generally we as a people, I'm not that narcissistic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Listen to us, folks. Um, mm. No, but we as citizens talk about that, that even if you are... Um, deprioritizing debt right now as in terms of the issues facing the country that how do we talk about this in a way that like actually uh sparks people's attention to actually pay attention to not just the number at the end of this bill but what is going in to it yeah i mean that that's the question and i think so far um republicans are are sort of failing the test but not I think the reason for that is that they mostly feel that resistance is futile, right? That there's really nothing that they can do that's going to, I mean, except for maybe increasing uh, pressure on Manchin and Cinema, there's really nothing they can do. They're they're sort of in the hands of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema right now, um, and and that's sort of the the only sort of uh, the only vehicle they have for like really putting a, a uh, wrench into this process. But uh, you know, this entire question is like, it, stop talking about spending. Stop talking about. Um, government money. Stop talking about all of these things. It's not to say they're not important, but people's priorities right now are different. And you need to, to speak to that, not only because it's politically expedient, but also because it's correct. And you can sort of talk about the, the cultural emergency that we're in without 
um, also, and Inez and I are, are generally on the same page about a lot of this, like when you're in a, an emergency, it's just sort of as we were talking about the welfare state, it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and suddenly say, this is emergency, let's bring back the great society and scale it up massively. Nobody's saying that, but you can sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. You can say this is a what they're doing is bulldozing our culture as Americans. They're bulldozing things that we love and that we cherish and that have lifted us. Um, you know, and this optimistic talk doesn't work well, very well right now. Uh, but there's also a negative side to this coin, which is that like they want the government, especially, and you may have different thoughts on this actually. I'm curious. In the, the age that we're sort of increasingly aware of the surveillance state, that the Biden administration wants this definition inflation where we define domestic terrorists as like people who say crazy things at school board meetings or people who don't even say crazy things. They say perfectly reasonable things about critical race theory at, at school board meetings. When you're participating in that sort of uh, definition inflation, it's in the service of increasing the domestic surveillance state. And giving government more power over our the, the intimate parts of our private life is not going to be popular widely. It may be popular with some people, um, the people for whom the sort of like continued for COVID people, state appeals the, to. For the people who set the policies and determine oh, yeah. who's a domestic well, terrorist, right? For, for which, big tech, which want, Mark Zuckerberg talks about how Facebook within the next five years should be considered a metaverse company, not a social media company. He wants people to be worshiping, literally having their church search services on the metaverse. That's the best way to think of it as like virtual reality or like a virtual reality that you could carry with you kind of on a Google glass, that sort of thing. Um, and so why is that? Because Mark Zuckerberg makes more money the more time we all spend on his platform. And so that's why um, Facebook has ads for Section 230 reform and all of the newsletters, right? Like all of the playbook or Axios. That's why they boast about it because they're able to withstand the fallout from political control. Their potential competitors couldn't. But big, big government and big business are always in bed together and it benefits the powerful people to have more and more control over our lives. It's not the opposite. Um, and that's where we're heading. We're, we're hurtling in that direction. I think it's one step closer than that. The people, it goes back to the fact that the people in big government and the people in big business have functionally the same cultural opinions. Yes. And and so it's not just that they have a financial interest, although they do. And that's, again, the, this is, we're not breaking any new ground here, right? Um, it's true that big Speak businesses for yourself. can, can no, but that's part of it, right? <laughs> that big business can withstand regulation better than small business. Um that's true, but it's incredibly important in a time where literally the people in in the uh, regulatory state and in the big business community have totally aligned views mm -hmm. on something that isn't directly about making money, right? That is about um, tamping down the range of acceptable opinion that can be shared in the public square and of, of essentially setting the boundaries both whether that's surveillance state from the government side or, you know, censorship from the big tech side, setting those boundaries of debate in such a way that that makes sense to these folks who are all essentially culturally similar. Yeah. It is it is a monoculture. And in fact, they they are using the fact that they agree on those issues, some of them more genuinely and some of them more 
or less genuinely and more for self-interest so that we'll ignore the fiscal side of what's going on. Um, but more or less genuinely, they are um, using their agreement on these cultural issues and their alignment in jamming that cultural perspective through government and through big business down on the rest of the American people. Um they're using that as like the basis of their ongoing and very cozy relationship, as opposed to they might differ about, you know, this regulation or that regulation. And they'll work out those differences, you know, friendly and behind closed doors for the most part. If you're a libertarian or a conservative who still thinks that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was an encroachment on individual liberty, then you should wait for what happens now that we define racism. Um, and we can, well, I mean, we can't actually even define sex. We can barely define race. Um, wait until what happens now when there's this progressive or bigot binary formulation on the people that control all of the levers of power in culture and in government. The reason they all agree generally is because academia produced a gradually sort of produced more and more people in each generation that uh, believed in this very radical formulation that if you are not fully progressive on every question of race and sex, you are necessarily a bigot, race and sex and sexuality, then you are necessarily a bigot. So that actually persuaded a whole lot of people because it was coming from the professors with this like Foucault-based um, justification, and they could, you know, read all about power and otherness, et cetera, et cetera, um, from all of their professors. And so they, they thought that was what was true. And it hit a point of critical mass in our society where that that old maxim, like, wait until they got into the real world, it, it proved wildly untrue. They are shaping the real world. They have shaped the real world to their ends. And this is when you have this progressive or bigot binary idea, people are either going to be persuaded uh, because nobody wants to be a bigot or they are going to be intimidated into submission. And that is what has happened in our culture. The rest is all yours in this, by the way, as she's, as she's pouring her glass of wine. Uh, we're drinking Chardonnay for those who are curious. Um, but very classy. It's very classy. Um, it's, a, it's an unseasonably warm October day here in the District of Columbia. But that's sort of like how they took over the culture. It's how they ended up controlling not just the fringes of the ivory towers, the sort of dusty corners of those ivory towers where you would throw the you know feminist professors. Well, that increasingly became everybody because nobody wanted to be a bigot. And that's the sort of postmodern or post-structuralist idea of what racism and sexism are. And so it, everybody just to, they, gradually enough people came from those colleges filtered through our system of higher education because they were told they had to to be a productive human being um, and they entered the workforce and now the workforce our c-suites our newsrooms and our boardrooms are controlled by people who all think the same way as you just said and as and that's why we're in a really dangerous point and and maybe this is the segue but that's what could inspire the backlash. When you are teaching children that hard work is a racist concept, you're going to have parents coming to school board meetings around the country and thank God that's what's happened. Um, but that's the question going forward is if the sort of boomerangs, um, because there's this, I think, what the example I always use, why is Jordan Peterson's book a runaway shock bestseller? Because there is a sort of understanding that we are fundamentally being nudged further and further away from our humanity um, and from what we need into a very dangerous space. 
Um, let's let's pivot here to the other item on our docket. Um, this is a piece that got a fair amount of play and some response. Um, but I think because, again, day-to-day -day issues tend to take precedence, um, some of you might have missed. And this is, this is the piece in New York Times um, about, as you say, the backlash um, and what Gen Z women. Yes. Um, I don't think millennials count as young anymore. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's why we have wine. Well, well not uh, millennials of your age. <laughs> Elder millennials. I'm a whippersnapper. Um <laughs> But uh, in any case, aside from uh, who is decrepit and who is not, uh, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> um, no, but but there was this really interesting piece. And Emily, you had a great response to it um, over at Rising, where you frequently fill in um, as a host uh, over at Hill TV. So you did your radar around um, this issue of sex positivity and what the backlash um, taking shape might actually look like. So, uh, can you fill us in on, on, uh, that and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, the ACLU column you mentioned, or I'm sorry, the New York times column you mentioned came from Michelle Goldberg, who is one of the staunchest, um, contemporary feminists in the corporate media and, and has been for a while. And she basically wrote about how Gen Z is rethinking the concept of sex positivity because they're finding out that it's not so positive, that it has all of these consequences and repercussions that aren't good for their psychological health. And it followed up and mentioned a BuzzFeed story from about a month or two ago on how sex positivity is sort of falling out of fashion with Gen Z. And that piece was much better even, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with the Goldberg piece, but, uh, well, there's a couple things wrong with it, but there, um, it, it was a, a much deeper dive into this phenomenon and, and it quoted a young girl talking about sex in the city and girls and saying HBO really did a number on us um, and, and how this sort of idea that if you that women can have uh, sort of not I shouldn't say meaningless, but sort of hedonistic sex where the goal is pleasure and not emotion um, or, or serious emotion it will be empowering. It will be liberating. It is the height of feminism. And that turned out not to be true for so many women. Obviously, as conservatives, stodgy, um, stodgy, puritanical conservatives have now been saying. Prepping. Yeah, right from the beginning. Um, and I mean, come on. And so Michelle Goldberg's uh, column said somehow sex positivity merged with porn culture to create a world that women are unhappy. And it's like, well, maybe the sex positivity had something to do with the proliferation of an intense porn. And I'll, I'll also add, this is why I kind of dubbed what is emergent but not fully formed a feminist realignment, because Michelle Goldberg, the column before she wrote that one, rebuked the ACLU for changing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's kind of famous quote about abortion to make it gender neutral um, because she said, you know, RBG said that because women had a very unique and specific experience with reproduction and abortion. And so to change it sort of dilutes the importance and the meaning of that. It's kind of exactly what feminists did have done with Title IX, where we see um, trans athletes in certain places trouncing women who have worked hard for years and years and years to become great at track. Let's take the Connecticut example, um, or, or just great at their sport. Um, that's why Title IX exists. That's why feminists fought for Title IX. And you're obviously, you know, turning back the clock when you dilute that. And the point of this all is to say, if we can at least talk 
um, about this without being called a bigot for not using gender neutral terms, then we can really open the door wide open to to say that perhaps sex positivity is uh, something that really hurts women. And uh, the Jordan Peterson example is a very, very instructive one. I was kind of shocked by the reaction to the rising monologue that I did on this because just a lot of people saying like, yeah, like, yep. Uh, so true. Uh, and and that's kind of, a I would say, a left of center progressive audience. Um, but I really think there's something happening because people who have women's best interests at heart, whether it's the COVID, the, the COVID situation where now a lot of women actually really are saying openly they would they'd rather be working from home or rather be working less because they had that experience. Whatever it is, I really think people are starting to question things, uh, and and that's been interesting to watch. Yeah, I guess um, we've gone back to our normal roles, which is you are the more optimistic, and I am the more pessimistic <laughs> side of this. Because, I mean, to some extent, I've seen this um, alignment between some of the con- conservative critiques of, say, the hookup culture, um, and the left increasingly coming to terms with the fact that. Uh, what might be called F boy culture uh, <laughs> is is has actually been great for F boys and not for this did is you a family watch, podcast. Did you watch F boy Island on HBO? I, I did not. Okay, I'll leave F-boy that to the culture Island editor. Proves this point. Um, don't watch it. It's bad, but it do, it's terrible. But it does prove this point. <laughs> um, but I think there is sort of alignment on discussing the problem, and I, I think actually what's really happened is a certain generation of feminists, um, particularly boomer feminists have sort of faded out of the conversation um, because the the original sort of sexual revolutionaries, right. Um, Or at least shortly after the sexual revolution, people who came of age shortly after the sexual revolution um, in a very real sense, we hadn't, nobody had lived in a culture where uh, casual sex, and I'm not going to call it premarital sex because that's vastly, um, That's, that's like it's a, a distinction. A totally anachronistic term now, right? But um, casual sex was the norm. Um, nobody had lived in that. And so I think there were all of these promises made by the sexual revolution to, particularly to women, but to men as well, um, that it was going to bring us happiness and bliss. And a lot of people really believed that and fought for it. And what we're seeing now is that alignment between, um, I think, particularly millennials and Gen Z, who really were the first two generations that wholly grew up with this as the norm and came of age with with the sexual revolution as the norm, as the dominant paradigm, saying, wait a minute, like, this is not, this is not great. Um, This has a lot of consequences that are are really negative. But I guess where I'm pessimistic is that I don't know that that backlash will necessarily be healthy or productive um, in, in the sense that like the example that you used, right? Title IX. In many ways, the way that we've warped Title IX um, and and the kangaroo courts that we've constructed for mostly men on campus um, in in terms of the legal liability and trying to replace social norms, pre-sexual revolution social norms about sex Mm. with this like legalistic contour about consent, um, that is an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle by legalistic means. Right. So I think it springs actually the total abuse of Title IX and of, of this totally heinous abuse of due process 
and and um, all of the attendant problems with the way that Title IX is enforced now on college campuses, um, that is in many ways a direct outgrowth of a recognition that there is something wrong with hookup culture and that a lot of women are walking out of it um, regretful and upset. But it just looped right back into the progressive narrative, which is, well, if they're regretful and upset, it must be because they didn't really consent or because the men were at fault. Or because of porn, like or, Michelle Goldberg says. Right. And I right. just wonder, like, even if if the porn explanation has more merit than, say, um, the, 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 the consent box to try to, like, explain um, why this feeling that so many women share about how this hookup culture sucks and like having to invent a sexual orientation called demisexual <laughs> um, for for actually wanting an emotional connection with your sexual partners yeah um yeah. it's an orientation now if, if, welcome to the lgbtq community it's their um, world we're just living in it <laughs> no but uh you know i, I we can agree on the problem all we want and this is similar to what you've said sometimes about the populist left and the populist right you both see the problem we were discussing in the first half of this podcast about this kind of um, uh, this this managerial class or, um, you know, some of the old school Marxists will just put it in, in terms of Marxism. But I think that the managerial class is the best possible explanation for it. Um, but they, they see this kind of growing oligarchy and they agree that it's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but their solutions and their underlying values are so radically different that the establishment more often than not ends up winning those battles because there is no obvious alignment on what the solution will be. And I worry that this kind of awakening among young women that this culture is bad could just as easily, if not more easily, feed into a kind of extremism that, for example, blames men for the situation yeah. um, between the sexes right now or blames, you know, whatever latent conservative prejudice right um <laughs> hiding behind every it, it is really funny to listen to people sometimes or particularly like new york times columnists who really see sort of christian conservatives behind every tree and like they see christian conservatism as such a dominant force in the country and i just like look around myself and wonder what planet are you living on yeah. um but yep. you know that that reaction could just as easily i think feed into something tyrannical um as it could into a genuine a conversation between left and right about the downsides of the way the sexual culture is constructed. Well, and so this is why uh, one way that I frame it sometimes is as a race against the clock. And I've used that description probably most often to talk about um, what you just mentioned, which is the, the realignment between the right and the left. Um, and, and that is to say, can can there be a realignment? Can there be a sort of populist consensus if there is not consensus on the American project? And I don't think the populist right and left actually have a consensus on the American project. And I think that's extremely, I think it's a huge obstacle to an actual realignment. And in, in this case, we're talking about a feminist realignment. I think it's a race against the clock in that COVID is a good example. I, conservatives seem to feel like they had the wind at their back when there was when Biden announced his vaccine mandate. This is what's going to win the midterms. This is what will do Biden in. This is a huge boon for conservatives who are trying to persuade Americans that the left is not for them. No, I like I, I think that is a, a huge mistake because I, I think this was happening before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really accelerated this desire among a subsection of the public, 
probably i mean i don't know we're talking like 30 percent. we're not talking we're not talking half we're not talking a majority but a big chunk of the public who actually now craves government control over their intimate personal decisions because they live in this sort of postmodern muddle jump in just by all means one by all means i think it's not a desire to control their own decisions because their own decisions align with it's distrust of their neighbor it's 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 to control the deplorable decisions it's to control the people who i think fundamentally who no longer trust the institutions and i think what we're seeing is like a doubling down um on the institutions by the people who frankly agree with what those that the worldview of those institutions and increasingly are totally um fine with with using those institutions even more aggressively than they have in the past 30 years which by the way is why like initially when some of these institutions started to go woke in the public eye right i'm thinking here of the new york times and barry weiss <laughs> yeah. leaving the yeah. new york times um and then the the firing of, of um what was his name donald um there was there was oh don mcgann don, don not McGann. that don mcgann i'm sorry no. um, <laughs> that's a different guy it's, a, it's very different you know actually somebody made that mistake recently and i corrected them his name was don mcneil um, I all I remember about his name is that he said, I don't go by Don, I go by Donald. So that's Donald McNeil. Donald McNeil. Um, but you know, how those things played out, it, it was very instructive to me that essentially the woke left has consolidated power with institutions that were already left-leaning for in the New York Times case for centu- a century. Um but but in other cases are just are bastions already of of the 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 left in a certain sense, but not of the radical woke left. Um, and that's where their their uh, sort of initial, I think, final endgame stage was focused, um, because I think that that'll make it much, much easier to implement um, or to use those institutions than to to control the neighbor's actions. But so I don't want to speak in like universals, but I, I think that's true. I also think what I originally said is true, because if you look at the weird worship of like the CDC and the just blind adherence to CDC guidelines as though they are capital S science. Actually, really do increasingly think people, and for good reason, don't trust themselves. Don't trust themselves as family units. Don't trust themselves as members of a community. They just don't trust themselves to make uh, it, to, to make decisions without sanctioning from the federal government and i think exactly what you said is true for a a proportion and i don't know how big the numbers are but i do generally think the point stands that republicans are deeply unwise to underestimate the proportion of the public that craves that control whether it's because they don't trust themselves or because they don't trust their neighbors and um to that extent this really does become a race against the clock like what can can this boomerang to affect enough people to say, like, listen, casual casual hookups without commitment is going to hurt women. Can this boomerang just enough sort of feminist women, center-left women, apolitical women who say, I was sold a, a bill of goods that was totally false and kind of reject that premise, which, by the way, the Democratic Party and the left dogmatically embraces that's why the Michelle Goldberg back-to-back columns were remarkable, literally. Um, so it's a race against the clock. Like, can there be enough Michelle Goldbergs uh, to to sort of out to, to sort of 
stem the tide to the point where it becomes impossible before the point it becomes impossible to resist and to you know do anything but but that's why it's i'm not even trying to bring this full circle in a poetic way but that's why this bill is important and should be important to cultural conservatives heterodox thinks thinkers um is because this is a huge step towards government sort of intervention and elite intervention in the culture war at their to their own benefit to their own benefit and that's that's a good example of how the race against the clock is about to um, be in the favor, more in the favor of elites than it is of sort of normal Americans. Um, and that's why people have to be sort of vigilant. Well, that was even more uh, poetically appropriate than I think you realized, Emily, because the reason I called this podcast High Noon was because I do, in fact, believe that that clock is running out on oh, so a whole host of subjects. Is it a cinematic illusion? So it's it's both. Um, it's it's actually there's three layers to this. In case anyone is actually interested, Please explain. In this. Have um, you ever explained this on the podcast before? I, I did an intro, uh, but uh, this is this is my thinking. Um, the okay. primary what I want people to understand um, about the name of the podcast is that I think we are at high noon. I, I think that clock that you're so poetically referring to is running out, and the the generation um, that you and I are in still decrepit or not. Um, may very well be the the last one that really remembers both worlds. I think that's true. Um, that remembers an America before uh, this ideology uh, really took full control and full power in our institutions. You say ideology, but I also feel like the ideology is downstream of the technology. Because in the BuzzFeed piece about Gen Z, it was talking about how Tumblr, the, the sort of Tumblr feminism really did them in. And the way that social media sort of incentivizes radicalism, um, especially as it's perpetuated by all of our, the pan-institutional sort of cultural leftism, I feel like the ideology is downstream of the technology. And, and to your point about our generation being the last generation to really remember that, it might sound laughable to some Xers um, or to even some boomers who grew up with television um, instead of radio, right? Like greatest generation. But like having the the world in your pocket at every given moment, millennials really are the last generation that uh, knows what it's like to live without the smartphone. And the smartphone was the most transformational thing um, of all because we used to have to go to a little corner of our house and dial up the internet, right? <laughs> but having it all in your pocket and having social media on it is a totally different world. Um, this is actually one of the things I want to press you on, perhaps in a future uh, episode, uh, a future docket episode um, with Emily Jashinsky. We'll pressure on uh, a little bit on uh, on that that connection between social media and exactly how consequential um, some of these technological changes are. Because I'm convinced they're consequential, but you're going to have to keep convincing me that they are the upstream factor as opposed okay. to a accelerant. Um, Let me say one thing before we close. We've talked, I think I brought this up before. There was a great, actually, Jacobin essay that went wrong, just disastrously wrong in a few parts, but about the rot of the ruling class. And I was reading, we're both big Polya people, Camille Polya people, and we actually did a whole podcast once on Camille Polya. Um, but I was reading this essay, um, I think it was called Junk Bonds and Corporate Raiders. Um, it was a book review from 1989, I think, uh, where Camille Paglia goes into this whole thing about how the 1980s represent the, the 
the the both like material junk bonds and the ideological junk bonds. So like the material junk bonds on Wall Street is, is what you're seeing, but you're also seeing the ideological junk bonds of post-structuralism. And uh, I mean, I, I of course think that the reason our ruling class pushes and mass these these apps on us and social media on us and smartphones on us without any regard for their addictive properties is because of post-structuralism because there is no because of secularism that's downstream of post-structuralism so we would agree on that and that's just my brief explanation and and self-defense well tune in next time uh (laughs) to our docket episodes um to find out one whether emily is right the technology isn't the um critical difference between accelerant so I also think it's an accelerant. So we'll see. We'll okay, work we'll this see. out. We'll work this out next time. Plus, I will tell you the other two meanings of high noon. So Ooh. those are. <laughs> oh, wait. Did I cut this short because I went on a sort of tangent? Well, now I'm not sharing them. Okay. Next well, time. So, and, and people, Inez, should comment. Um, we're drinking a Chardonnay now. People should comment um, what we drink next time. Yeah. Send, send that to Inez.Setman at IWF. Or, or put it in a five-star review. Now, that would be even better. If you put it in a five-star review, we will drink what, whatever alcohol you put in a five-star review. We can't drink tequila because I'm allergic. <laughs> okay. Anything but that. <laughs> I will not. Um, well, thank you so much for, for tuning in to High Noon. Um, as always, be brave, and we'll see you next time.